Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to Sex, Psychics and Psychedelics, Discovering Inner Liberation. My name is Banana Jane Garnett. I'm a licensed psychotherapist, a lover of freedom and a relentless explorer of the mind. Please come join me on my journey in hot pursuit of inner illumination and liberation. For more about me, you can find me at the Banana Jane on Instagram. Now let's dive in. Today's guest is Dr. Eva Altabelli. She's an addiction psychiatrist who runs Home LA, a wellness center that integrates therapy, psychiatry, and psychedelics. Eva is a diplomat of the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology. She is certified in psychedelic therapy and research from the California Institute of Integral Studies, as well as by MAPS the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies, and she's qualified to treat PTSD with MDMA. In this episode, we'll be mapping the burgeoning world of ketamine therapies, assessing ketamine's applications, costs, shortcomings, and future possibilities. Why I keep coming back to Ava is because she's such a successful bridge character between the world of traditional psychology and this new world of psychedelics. This is a woman who knows her shit when it comes to chemistry. So listen up. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the show, Ava. Yes, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Wonderful, wonderful. So just uh, let us get to know you a little bit. How long have you been working with psychedelics and what drew you into this field of work? Um, I have probably been exploring psychedelics since... Uh, for about 30 years. So like non-ordinary states of consciousness and transformational healing and just alternative ways to think about the mind have always been a fascination for me pre-med school. Um, mm. So I uh, went to med school kind of by default after a failed film career. And um have been tracking the research since it resurfaced in the 90s and personally have been exploring psychedelics since probably 2015. So I can not shamanically trained, but definitely speak from the underground of experience and treatment, as well as the above ground academic perspective of it. Absolutely. And I think you and I share that. We have that in common. It's fact how we how we met was sort of in that funny intersection of the the underground yeah. and the above ground worlds, which I <laughs> I always personally really love because it's so such an interesting, you know, juxtaposition. Um okay, good. So um we're gonna talk about ketamine today. I mean, I know we could talk about so many of the psychedelics. Um but, you know, we can do that in other episodes. I feel like ketamine is, is such a hot topic right now. Everyone is interested in it. Everyone seems to be either wanting to do it or doing some version of it. And there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of debate about its efficacy. Um, so I'd love you to help us map all of this. So let's just start out with, I know that you're using ketamine in your clinic. So I'll say, yes. why, why are you using ketamine in your clinic? And why is there so much happening with ketamine right now? Um, because of all of the transformational medicines, it's the only legal one at the moment. MDMA and psilocybin are, you know, on, on board, but ketamine is the only medication available right now to offer some potential transformational healing. Um, and it's a different model, you know, Western medicine, the way I was initially trained and, you know, I'm a psychiatrist. So we're like brought into the world as prescribers. Um, medications tend to reduce symptomatology by reducing the pain that we feel. Um, 
one hand good. On the other hand, sometimes that pain is a message that lets us know there's something that doesn't work here and there's something that you should do something about. So if we continue to stay on the medication as Prozac, Paxil, Lexapro, Abilify, we don't feel these feelings. Uh, the, the new face of some of this transformational change allows us to really go deeper with transformational change. But I think that doesn't completely answer your question because I was thinking about this before. There really are a couple different models of ketamine use, molecular and uh, transformational. But also- So hold on a second. So molecular means more like sort of as a a painkiller? Is that what you mean? No, the molecule itself. Oh, okay. And quite okay. useful without the the person helping to. Oh, okay. So, so just as a drug, not in therapeutic yes. context. Got it. Got yes, it. Got yeah. it. Okay. Yeah. Just as a yeah. drug, and and for pain, yes. You know, it started as a medication for pain and an anesthetic, which was mm. used commonly. It was actually, you know, the term K hole. Yes. It was coined during the Vietnam War because. Um, once you were injured, you would be given ketamine and in uh, there would be dugouts on the battlefield and you would lay low in the hole until the medics could come get you in your sort of ketamine disassociative pain relief state. And then they would come get you and fly you out. And that's the key. Oh my God. I never knew that. I thought it was just going into a very, very like dark and kind of obscure place which is what I observed in when I was at Oxford I never touched it actually because I would see these people slumped in chairs yeah. you know going into a k-hole but I I didn't realize it had that that history, it history. it's like super useful uh way to, yeah. to be in a <laughs> be in a k-hole um so okay so of oh, so many questions I mean I suppose my first question I get confused about this with ketamine it's a disassociative so it's in some ways disconnecting you to your body. So how is that relevant when we're talking about healing and actually understanding your pain? The way I've seen it be most useful in ketamine-assisted psychotherapy is that it does allow us to disassociate from the pain, but not the reality of the experiences we've had. Um. Okay, wait, 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 wait. Let's go slower on this. So you get um, removed from your current pain, but not the story around the pain? So can I, let's back up for a second. Yeah, yeah. Uh, three, three models, okay. molecular, yeah. psycholytic, and psychedelic. Okay. Molecular is just, the molecule itself is super helpful for pain, anesthesia, depression, um, synaptogenesis, creating new neural pathways. Um, it, 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 the molecule in and of itself is quite helpful. The Wait, molecule- so hold on, sorry, synaptogenesis. So you're saying that this, this drug can actually create on its own new neural pathways? Uh, yeah, there have been studies more often with mice. So the transition from mice to human, okay. But yeah, they're, a month out, the dendrites grow more um, branches for about a month out after uh, the mice are dosed with ketamine, which is why it's useful and there's conversation around cognitive flexibility being something that can be utilized with ketamine and the other transformative medicines on the table for legalization. Okay, wonderful. I'm going to try not to interrupt you, but it's just too good. Okay, so we're starting out with Molecular. Yeah. But, but the molecular, we, we don't have that much to talk or I don't because as a psych, as somebody in ketamine assisted psychotherapy, I take advantage of the molecular components, but I don't actually use it, harness it like that. A lot of the infusion clinics, um, run by anesthesiologists, you can go and get an IV of ketamine and this could be quite helpful for depression but there is, for some, a, a limit to how long this will last, and then you will have to go back for maintenance. What would be an average 
time frame that you, you know, your depression would lift for how long and then you'd have to go back? You know, it's so hard to say. It was um, rescheduled in 2019 as Spravato provided intranasally as a medication for treatment-resistant depression. And the way it was looked at was, you know, six uh, administrations in a three-week period. But that was specific to the amount they could get in the body reasonably and the result. And it lasted the antidepressant effects. This was really for, you know, uh, not only treatment resistant depression, but high suicidality. And it was quite impressively helpful. Um, But maintenance was required sometimes after one month, sometimes after three months. It it varied. Um, But it doesn't tend to be like, oh, I had ketamine and now it's behind me and I will never have this depression again. And it's cured. Like it's not a cure mm-hmm. from the molecular think, model. I mean, oh, well, the molecular model isn't a long-term cure and nor is the infusion. Right. Because it's you, unless the infusion is done with a, a therapeutic in a therapeutic environment, like you have an infusion with a psychotherapist walking you through stuff and you have the prep and the experience and the integration, you know, the whole package. Right. You might have more help uh, retraining your brain. I mean, that's a part of it, isn't it? Of, of... And that's great. Yeah. 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 So I guess we're, we're back in results may vary territory, which always seems to yeah. come up around all drugs and healing work and everything in life. But um, okay, so we've got molecular, we've got the infusion. Oh, wait, one other thing on the infusion. So infusion can be, um, it can be a series or it could be a one-off. Is that right? You know what? I don't provide this, the infusion, so I can't speak directly okay. to it. Okay. But it is generally okay. recommended from what I hear as a series. Okay. It's a series and it's generally for depression, but I think sometimes for pain. Is that right? Chronic pain? Oh, there's a lot of infusion for pain and there's a lot of infusion for like intractable pain, which has mm. been quite helpful. And there's also um, providers offering infusion for detox. So there's a lot of potential roles for this that are a little outside the scope of what I know and what I can speak about in m- more granularly. I just know yeah. that they're, they're very um, potentially beneficial and it's like a rich area for us to continue to study. And if, if uh, let's say I had a client who's on a handful of antidepressants, but they want to go into a, um, you know, a deeper treatment, uh, is ketamine sort of lenient when it comes to being able to be on other medications or do you need to wean? Yeah. It said ketamine plays well with others. Ah, okay. That's you know, unlike I remember the, that phrase. Yeah. yeah like yeah, psilocybin yeah. and MDMA, not so much. Ketamine's uh, pretty friendly with most other molecules. Does it have a, does it, is it taxing on the heart? Uh, it there are a couple things we screen for, even like for me before doing ketamine assisted psychotherapy, and it can increase uh, heart rate. So if you tend to have very high blood pressure, uh, it is something to look out for and make sure somebody's on a controlled um, protocol to keep their blood pressure in check. And also we, you know, there are conversation around, oh, okay, you, you don't usually, but you do for now. Do you need a little clonidine to help reduce your heart rate in this moment? Because not only as we go deeper, as you, you know, spend time in this non-ordinary state of consciousness, it can be unsettling. So that in and of itself could raise your blood pressure. Absolutely. Okay, great. So, um, so now we're on to the third one. So we've had molecular infusion. And what's the third? Um, so we're talking about, just to uh, get a little clarity, I was thinking molecular, psycholytic or psychedelic, but there's also the infusion, the, the routes of administration, intranasal, mm-hmm. intramuscular, oral infusion, 
It's depository. I'm sure there's others. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> there's a lot going on with this ketamine. It, it seems to so, play well in all shapes, sizes, and ways, you know. Right. Um, so there, uh, which would you like to discuss routes of administration or, Mm. um, molecular versus psycholytic versus psychedelic? Well, I get confused with these words, psycholytic, um, psychedelic, I, I know, but psycholytic kind of throws me a bit. So I think, um, well, I want to cover the way that you're doing it. I think we need to talk about the sort of assisted. Mm Mm-hmm root um and anything else we need to know to kind of get a handle on this on this map as you can see I know some of it but you know I just don't have a thorough map and I know that most listeners won't so whatever you think we need to understand to get the lay of the land in this in this world okay um so I think it would be helpful to talk about the difference between psycholytic versus psychedelic dosing psycholytic is um Generally, you can have a low dose of ketamine brought on board, regardless of whether it's intramuscular, intranasal, oral, um, IV. If you have a little bit, it can feel, you know, like um, it is relaxing. It tends to melt away some of our natural defenses. It allows one to relax into a state where they are more able to discuss things that they felt perhaps more unconsciously guarded against exploring. So that's how it can be helpful in what we refer to as a psycholytic, which means able to discuss. I should know like the actual Greek translation for that. That would make me sound very smart. <laughs> you sound smart anyway. <laughs> um, you know, we don't need any more big words. Ava. Come right, on. Right, okay. we, we this is sex, psychic, psychedelics. We're going to keep it real. It's okay. <laughs> um, so the psycholytic dosing allows for a clinician and a client to sit in a room together and have a conversation and really uh, go deep. And clients are more available really to look at their stuff and process it. Then there's like a middle ground and then there's fully psychedelic. Um, The psychedelic is you... uh, have a dose high enough that takes you farther out. I tend to describe the farther outness as generally one of four ways. You are either a molecule floating in the universe and you're just kind of out there and it's like you're in an Escher painting and there's floating and movement. There is the um, biographical but not personal. I was in Egypt. I was helping to build the pyramids. I was there. There were people. We were involved. There's the biographical and personal. I was spending time, you know, with my dog that I lost and my grandparents who passed away. And, um, you know, I was there and I saw my my kids and my family and my husband and my boss. And you could be uh, have experiences with people. And then there's kind of the Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz experience where, the experiences and people and important things in your life kind of pass before your mind's eye without the emotional uh, connection to them. So to be more specific, you could see perhaps an image of you getting abused as a child or um, if you had the misfortune of some terrible traumas, you can see them without the fear and sort of that immediacy of the, the, the panic of being in it again. So it becomes a little easier to explore and it does help create space to see that from a different perspective, as well as to zoom out and see it within the context of not only your life, but socioculturally. So it, it really uh, is, a, is a bigger experience and a bigger way to experience your own life. Mm, so interesting. And actually, you're reminding me of some EMDR work I did, um, some trauma work with a client who decided to take um, 
ketamine lozenges before our session. He'd take, I think, a half mm-hmm. or, or a whole lozenge before we would do our trauma work. So we would have prepared before and been like, um, you know, we're going to go in on that moment in childhood when that terrible thing happened and he'd take the lozenge half an hour before and then we would do the EMDR, which is, you know, moving around the trauma and, and as you know, right, um, mm-hmm. uh, repairing the, the negative beliefs about self that got attached to that. And, you know, I'd done plenty of EMDR work with him already by the time he, he took the, the lozenge and we decided to do it that way. And I did notice a significant difference in the sense that, just as you said, it sort of brought down the charge on the whole thing. It felt like we were able to navigate more swiftly and uh, smoothly around these very, very difficult um, places and experiences. And yeah, there was a a sort of more spaciousness um, as well, psychologically. So it's very cool. Thanks for saying that word, spacious. That comes up a lot with clients. They do recognize the space between their accustomed reactivity and the feeling and, and without, without reacting, they kind of notice what they would have done and that they're not doing it and that they're sitting there in that space. So with interesting. An with an opportunity. Right. Right. Exactly. Cause as you were talking, I was thinking, you know, I feel like I've got this sort of subtle prejudice against ketamine. I, I mean, I'm very, very interested and I love that it has all of this potential. And obviously, a lot of people are being helped by it. But um, I think my subtle prejudice has to do with the kind of the feeling of the the drug itself, which in some ways feels to me a bit soulless. Like if I think about psilocybin, I feel the character of that. If I think mm-hmm. about ayahuasca, I feel the character of ayahuasca. Iboga, same, even MDMA, ketamine has this sort of odd blankness to it. So my question was, does ketamine have soul? And then, mm-hmm. no, I, I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, just, yeah, just one thing on that. I was thinking maybe the spaciousness is the soul, you know, that, that, that it invites in space, allows our soul to show itself or recognize itself. Yeah. Ketamine has um, a gentleness to it. There is a certain flow and there is actually, it it seems like there's a bit of a feminine energy associated with the the space. And this is also, I think, cultivated, as you probably mentioned in these meetings before, with set and setting. You know, the mindset of the client and the setting of the environment that you are uh, experiencing this medicine in, if they are sort of ripe for one to feel safe, then it is easier for the ketamine and the person to do their work together. Oh, I'm getting it now. I, I was first like feminine. I don't feel like that at all. But then now you're talking about set and setting and the feeling of safety, the feeling of being held. That's pretty feminine. Um, yeah. That's um, that's some mothering. Wow. Yeah. So just kind of receive in that and feel like, oh, even so many people have seen these like visions of themselves as children and are able to experience compassion and sort of weep for that part of them and 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 have a sense of compassion for the parts of them that try so hard to protect the other parts. Like there is, there is really a softening in, in the space. If you don't get too high that you forget, like there's a, an art to the <laughs> dosing, you know, you could be yeah. so high that sure that was great, but you don't come back with any memory of the gains. Yes. I imagine there's quite the art to that. So maybe you could talk us through how it works in your clinic and how you gauge the dosing and how the whole sure. thing. Works. Um. So we start with, you know, um, psychiatric evaluation for medical and psychiatric clearance um, and some preparatory sessions to build the connection between the client and myself or the client and my colleagues that work with me here at home. Um, When the client comes in, I use intramuscular and my colleagues uh, 
use either intramuscular or oral, depending on if I or the nurse practitioner is available right. for the intramuscular. Oral lotion. is the, the lozenges? Yeah, there's yeah. A, a trochee, which is like a little waxy mini hockey puck. And then there's the rapidly dissolving tablet. And the goal behind the lozenge is that you hold it in your mouth for 12 or so minutes. And the longer you can hold the saliva created by having this funny tasting thing in your mouth, the more it is absorbed through the oral mucosa and then gets slowly into the body. Oh, does that help with nausea? Because I know that if you just, you know, gazala lozenge, you're most likely to feel nauseous. Either. It's, it's, it actually is deactivated it by the acids in the system if you just swallow it down. So you have to hold it in your mouth for the, the pH to be proper uh-huh. for the absorption. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. The recommendation is that you then spit all of the saliva that you've held onto in your mouth. Um, oh, you don't swallow you know, it? No, you're supposed to spit to avoid the nausea and also to avoid the second pass kick that can occur hours later in some people. I have, you know, I'm an addiction psychiatrist, so I do have a population of clients that are of the more is better vibe. So they're like, spit, I got it on board. I'm keeping it. And that, that then goes there. (laughs) That's funny. That's funny. Actually, at some point I want to talk to you about that. Oh uh, yeah. Question, you know, uh the addiction question and the the you know Oh of course f- that's f- fun and dependency question. But um okay. So okay, oh, yeah, so- and just one more thing, sorry, practical on that nausea is I heard that they were developing something that, that had an anti nausea. Oh, Zofram is a commonly you know, I even when I prescribe oral for people to bring into the office mm-hmm. to sit with the clinicians, I also prescribe Zofram, which is an anti nausea. And the recommendation is if you're prone to nausea with anesthesia or even just windy car rides or boat trips, pre-medicate with the um, anti-nausea so it's not a thing because it can be quite uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's good. That's helpful. All right. And then there's the back to your. Okay. The drop in. This is like what the experience is like. So we're talking about how you do it with, you do it with intramuscular. Intramuscular. Yeah. Yeah, I'll describe you like a day of. Great. So, so we've said, you know, don't eat for two hours before coming in. And ideally, you're supposed to be like NPO, don't eat or drink for three to four hours. We've softened that a bit. And so it's don't eat for two hours, don't have big meals earlier in the day, and try not to drink for two hours. If we're in a desert and it's hot, sip. But this is to avoid if you're nauseous throwing up. Um, so... Clients come in, the room is set. I have, it it looks a little bit like a living room and there is a a, a sofa, the lights are dim, there's a candlelit, there's ketamine assisted soundtrack music playing in the backgrounds. We sit and we talk for a couple of minutes. First they sit on the sofa and I'm on the chair and then I ask them to sit on the chair while I take the cushions off the sofa and put sheets and a fresh pillowcase on so that they then lie down. We continue to talk for a little bit, a little about intentions. I ask if there's any apprehension, any, and I prep it with, you don't have to say, you don't have to not say it because we won't not do it if you are apprehensive, if you still want to go. I just want to voice everything. Like, are there fears? Are there apprehensions? Are there things you don't want to do or go or see? So we try to put voice to what we can. Um, Then, I tend to have clients relax and I turn on actually a five minute guided meditation. I'll probably start talking through it, but I think it's nice to make a separation between us engaging Mm. and them dropping into a grounded root, imagine roots into the earth, your body relaxing, uh, connect with the weight underneath you of gravity. So you lie down and you relax for a couple minutes through that guided meditation. Then I take blood pressure. Usually you're okay. Um, we talk, we have previously talked about dosing and if we're going to go really light, uh, intramuscular, you know, 15 is a very light dose and you'll just kind of take a break. It's just like an augmented meditation, meditative experience. But if we um, uh, block the eyes and 
and headphones. So we're controlling for two of the five senses. You are able to drop in deeper, even at a low dose, such that if you have anxiety about it, you can take the eye mask and the headphones off and you're in the room and you're like, okay, I got it. I have agency. I can go to the bathroom. Uh, I'm not fearful that I'm lost. So if we have anxious people, we can start there or even just start with the whole experience without the meds if you're super anxious. Generally speaking, people want at least a little something, so we go there. If we have decided that we're going to try for a slightly higher dose because the client wants to really have the the potential for their psychedelic experience, which offers the what we have talked about in uh, psychedelic healing as a mystical experience, which the literature shows is, you know, a sense of oneness and connectivity and openness. And that has shown to be the most transformative and transformational and really allows people to have a complete separation from their value system and the way they see themselves in the world. So some like the idea of going that deep. Okay. But you can go as deep as a hundred milligrams, which will give you that full on far out psychedelic experience, but you won't come back with much memory of the experience. So I have taken to bringing it back a little bit and having it slightly lower and, and shifting the dose to two injections. I use the tiny little needle you use for, remember if you ever got those like TB tests, they put that mm-hmm. tiny little thing under your skin. So it doesn't really hurt so much. Um, and you get one injection, you start to feel it in like two minutes. I say it's going to peak at nine or 10. So I'll ask you at 15 is this where you want to be? Like, how are you doing? Are, are you here? Is this where you want to rest? Or would you like to go a little deeper? And if clients want to go a little deeper, then we do a second and then we let them relax for, you know, 40 minutes. And once they start to think, I said, when you have your first thought of like, do I still need to lie here? Or once you're fully aware that like you're on the sofa in the room, you can take the headphones off and we just have the music in the room. Oftentimes people like to stay relaxed with their eye shades on and we just sort of begin to talk and process through things that came up. So how much time has passed at this point? The, the appointment is three hours. So I'd like to get the first injection in within the first 40 minutes so that by the first hour, we've had all the medicine on board we're going to bring on board. Because remember, there was a 15-minute window between the first injection and the second. And then generally for about an hour, clients spend most of their time with the eyeshades and the headphones. Coming in and out to talk at times, but mostly, especially at higher doses, you don't have great access to your lips, tongue, and mouth. So even if you want to, you really can't have a lot of conversation. Um, That's one way to shut them up, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) 50 minutes is kind of the average um, quiet time. And then then clients, it it aggravates the bladder a little bit. Sometimes clients at that point need to wake up and use the restroom. That's when I offer a cup of tea and then they lie back down. And then we have the opportunity to talk for an hour, which can be called Therapy, integration, unintegration, there's, you know, whatever word you want to put in it, we we sit in the room together and talk. And it doesn't always have to be conversation. There are people who find it easier to draw. So I have, you know, colored pencils and paper if you need to move, like whatever your form of expressing and trying to connect to what your experience was is is open. So this may be a difficult question to answer, but I'm wondering um, how this would compare in terms of kind of depth work to a psilocybin journey, an MDMA journey, an ayahuasca journey. It it seems like it could be super, super deep or not. It's kind of Mm -hmm. interesting. It really can be. And I have seen it be both. Yeah. Ayahuasca has a... It's, it is true. I do feel like ayahuasca and psilocybin have more, bring more. Like they, they, they're, um, they have agendas. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, like they yep. they are pre- they are a pres a present player in the experience. Absolutely, yes. Yes. Um MDMA and ketamine, not as much. Like I don't see ketamine as having ever having an agenda. It's really about whether the client is ready to let go of their guard and see different aspects of themselves. Do they just want to break? Do they really want to look at it? It a, a lot is what's the client ready and up to, and a lot speaks to the dose. Yeah, yeah. Well, I must say, listening to that description made me want to cuddle up on those fresh sheets and just <laughs> bliss out on ketamine. But you know, maybe that's uh, yeah, that's the maybe more the the escapist in me. Which, and actually, I tried. In fact, uh, I was working with a wonderful psychedelic practitioner that you and I both know and I had actually had or I already had psilocybin in my system but it was the only time I've had a kind of significant dose of of ketamine he put it up my mm-hmm. nose I think he mm-hmm. blew it up my nose yeah like roughly uh, right exactly exactly it was such an amazing feeling in my body I, I'm someone who's always had some version of sort of like aches and pains ever since I was a child you know and I had an experience of like just bliss in the body and it was wonderful and I was super grateful for it. And at the same time, I had one of those sort of warning signals go throughout me, which because my first thought was like, oh, I want to do this again already. You know, it was like getting a good massage or something. I was like, shit, what I could, can I do this every week? And then, you know, immediately after that, I was like, be careful, you know. Mm you could get addicted to this stuff. This feels so good. You might just want to keep doing it. So let's mm-hmm. talk about that. Yeah. So I also don't think that there's anything wrong with using it. If it, it is, it, if not the just to feel good euphoria, but if it is an opportunity to relax yeah, and turn off that inner critic and the do living in that consistent goal oriented, agenda-driven culture with our shoulders up and vigilant and ready. You know, we, oh, we've yeah. acculturated ourselves to that. So if it's just to mm-hmm. take a break, I think it's a well-used tool even at that. Mm-hmm. I do, however, prefer in-office use of ketamine as opposed to prescriptions out and people using it at home because I think there runs a pretty high risk of overuse or diversion, fancy word of giving it to your friends, uh, Um, with it outside of the sort of the clinic use. There, I mean, that's not to say it's been super helpful and I would have a hard time arguing with somebody that was like, but you know, we really need it. And it's really helpful for this person who has terrible trauma and they absolutely cannot afford the ridiculous price of a medication that is not covered by insurance. And it's only offered to humans with means and it's not fair. And how, why is, why are we saying you can't use it at home? So it's a, it's a tricky bridge to cross. I mean, it's still expensive as a prescription, right? It's still more expensive than, you know, I don't know. Uh, I, I don't know that compare it to. On, you know, there's a, I mean, I, I guess relative to what's expensive, like a hundred dollars or I don't really know. Yeah, no, what, I was thinking about, so I worked with a neurologist for a while. Um, I went through a phase of having pretty bad migraines. Thankfully, they've calmed down probably because of all the extensive psychedelic work, but um yes. But she, thank you, yeah, she prescribed me a nasal, ketamine nasal spray. Mm -hmm. And it's very short-acting kind of pain reliever. Actually, it felt like a sort of head stabilizer to me. Like I called it a head handhold. I felt like my head was being held, you know. And it was really, really nice. Didn't last for long. Mm -hmm. Uh, Kind of wore off in a few hours. Um, And I thought this is probably the most effective painkiller I've run into as someone who's tried many. Um, Yeah, I I thought it was, I was very impressed, but it was a hundred dollars or 120 for a, for a little spray bottle. Yeah. I think it's about if you order it and you get, you know, 30, a a packet of 30 is about that Mm. price too. 
Ah, uh, okay, okay. Well, I mean, I think this this question of cost is is really worth looking at because mm-hmm. I mean, I have a lot of people come to me going like, I don't know what to do. Is it worth it? You know, I had a friend who tried it and it was great, but then I had another friend who tried it and it they felt like they'd wasted their money. So, what about this? Spervato, um, uh, in 2019, when, ke- when the FDA rescheduled ketamine as a medication appropriate to treat treatment-resistant depression, it came out as Spervato, an intranasal spray, and that is covered by insurance. There's a bunch of hoops you have to go through to get it, but it's available. Ketamine in and of itself is very cheap. It's just all of the sort of middle men that got involved in it that make it expensive, like healthcare in America. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> bigger topic there. But yeah, I mean, I've noticed those infusion clinics. Uh, I don't know what are they charging now. It's a lot, isn't it? It's a couple thousand bucks. It's definitely pricey. At least, yeah, at least. Yeah, it could it, be more. I mean, yeah. So, so what's the most co- cost-effective way to have a ketamine experience? Would you say? It depends. It, it's that's a hard question to answer because you say ketamine experience. Okay. What is that? Then the I would follow up with, oh, you want a ketamine experience? What what are you struggling with, mm. and what are you looking for? Like, yeah, sure, yeah, sure. Those, I'm just, I guess, I'm just wondering. Okay, say you're. I've got a friend. This is a real case scenario who suffers from chronic pain. He's been looking at these different clinics and. He just doesn't know what to do. It, you know, it's he's really freaked out by the cost. He's also in a lot of pain. You know, that also, when you're in a lot of pain, it's quite hard to think clearly. So that's another issue, right? But I'm wondering if, say for him, can he try a lozenge and get a sense of whether ketamine's for him or does it not work like that? Like, is there a little step that you can take to feel it out? You know, ketamine most likely will work for most pain. That's that's how it was born as a pain reliever, as an mm-hmm. anesthetic. Like that's its kind of coming into the world in 1950s. That's kind of its job. Right. But I guess the question is, you know, chronic pain, is it going to just give you a little relief or is it going to um, help there you are, rewire, are, you know? Well, there are, you wouldn't necessarily use it for the transformative rewiring. You you would use it to shift your relationship to your pain because that is another whole thing in and of itself. But there are a lot of wonderful providers that are offering ketamine on even microdosing, like tiny little bits. You know, like like the average lozenger to make you feel like you had say two glasses of wine is about 150 milligrams. The there are a number of pain management centers that offer, I shouldn't say a number, but there are some that offer tiny doses, you know, 10 milligrams twice a day. So Mm -hmm. it's sub, it's the way you microdose with psilocybin. It's sub Mm -hmm. threshold. You won't Mm -hmm. feel it, but it will help cut the pain. Mm, I think that sounds like a good good idea. Yeah, there is absolutely. I would definitely recommend that person explore and kind of like interview, like the way you would interview somebody for a job, interview clinics and find something that feels like a good fit that where they're not, you know, paying a really high rent and creating a beautiful place so they could lure people in because there's that. And, you know, not to shed opinions on things all over the place, but there are also clinics that exist really for pain management and can be helpful and aren't, I think, as ongoingly expensive. Probably the initial um, connection would be pricey because it, you have to sort of evaluate for appropriateness. Right. And it's always like that, isn't it? I mean, I know to have a you know a psychiatric evaluation is always that, that initial consult is always the... Even for a shoulder surgery, like anything, yeah. you have to wait for like what's the problem what's the need what are our Mm. options do you see this as something that's going to become more and more available to the average person I do I do I I actually see all of the molecules that are currently trying to be made in labs that have grown on the earth (laughs) as part of the future of um, mental health psychiatry and psychology. Yeah, definitely. 
I'm going to ask a pretty far out question. What do you think would happen if we switched out alcohol for ketamine in our culture? You know, alcohol is still the number one killer. Um, I don't think it would be good. (laughs) (laughs) Again, again, because if you're, if it's used the way alcohol's used to, at times to numb, to separate from, there are, uh, there's tolerance, there's withdrawal, there's not being, it, it, dis, it, it would particularly be bad, bad, I think, because it would disconnect us from each other and we are already living in a profoundly disconnected society. Yes, 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 yes. And actually that sort of brings me back to the thought of how do you do ketamine and why it might be much better to do it with a uh, facilitator, a therapist, a practitioner, and not just be in a clinic with someone in a white coat pulling the IV out going, okay, you're all done. Make sure you get an Uber, you know, um, yeah. because it, it seems to me that, that ketamine has this beautiful ability to add space and kind of um, disconnect sort of overloaded networks like it makes me think of those you know those tight hunched shoulders you were talking about you know bring space into the body bring space into the mind but you don't want to just stay spaced out you want to reconnect and repair oh what am I doing this for and you know who am I going back to in my life I mean I think these are the dots that we need to keep connecting actually in all all kinds of psychedelic work you know it's great to go off and have an experience Mm -hmm. but we want to do that in order to be able to come back to life more successfully in our, our relationships and each other. Yeah, absolutely. So I, for that reason, I think it's important. I think the relational component is primary to the, the potential for ketamine as a useful tool. Because between the IV clinics without that don't give you supportive therapeutic integration, some do. But the ones that don't and using it at home are both uh, continue with that disconnected, isolated experience. Um, and some of the IV clinics could be quite therapeutic for people or helpful if you no longer feel suicidal or you don't have the pain. But it will not allow you to feel connected to yourself, to your family, to the earth. You know, like psychedelics are kind of pro-social drugs and you, there's a susceptibility uh, within the psychedelic space. So if you are within, if you are held in a psychedelic field in relationship to somebody else and you get to bounce stuff around, most people come back from ayahuasca journeys and are more prone to recycle or compost or, you Mm -hmm. know, like, Mm -hmm. um, we become more responsible to the world around us and the world that we're creating with people in our orbit with the therapeutic component to it. And and that's not a hard and fast rule. It's just, you know, you have a greater percentage of that happening. Yes, oh, that's certainly my my hope is that's what's happening and going to happen. And um, Ava, this is so wonderful. I feel like we've covered some really important stuff here. And I just want to um, wrap up with a, a big lofty question, which is... Um, well, it's two parts. What do you see as the, the future of ketamine and um, what is your, your wish for the future of ketamine and your own part in the, in the psychedelic revolution? Um, I think that ketamine is, because it's a shorter duration, it's easier to utilize for trauma with clients. So I actually do feel that within a, I think we, we may end up with um, modules where for ketamine for trauma, there will be a specific uh, or, orientation in the way it's used. You know, like you need to have this many m- meetings before this experience and this many meetings after kind of the way the research has utilized uh, MDMA. Yes. 
because I think it's about the relationship. And I think there's a lot of healing that can be done for trauma. And I think that trauma is one of the main contributors to depression, suicidality, addiction, and so many of our sort of larger crisis-oriented mental health issues. So I think it will be very helpful within the container of how it's created and, and rolled out. Agreed. Agreed. And for you, your wish? My wish is kind of the bigger picture, you know, the, that ketamine and the psychedelics really can increase our capacity for compassion and connectedness. And I think we're at a, at a funny place as a humanity and we could, uh, you know, we could continue in shadow and go down a dark path and might not last as long as we want to. And I think with psychedelics on board, we have a greater chance to recognizing that really we are all in this together and we all get out of it together. Yeah, we have to. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Oh gosh. Thank you so much. This has been really wonderful. And uh, I hope when I start Sex Psychics and Psychedelics in, in Ojai, in, the, in my magical backyard psychedelic kingdom, we could actually do some, some live demo work. Oh, that sounds amazing. That sounds, so that sounds good. So fun. Tell us, how do we find you? Oh, thank you for asking. I, um, I opened a wellness center in Santa Monica on 6th Street between Wilshire and Arizona. We are called HOME-LA. The acronym stands for Healing Opportunities, Meaningful Evolution. And the phone number to the clinic is 424-300-0037. Or you can find us on um, Instagram, on Facebook, or shoot us an email, info at home-la.com. Amazing. Thank you, Ava. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Jane. It's been a pleasure.